Um, well, good morning. My name is Nate. I get to be one of the pastors here. I get to preach a couple times a year, and it is a joy to get to do that this morning. We'll be um, opening God's Word out of Hebrews 8 today, so if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I invite you to start turning there as I set up our time together this morning. I can uh, remember back to the mid-80s, 1980s, uh, when our neighbor Dave Roberts got a Nintendo Entertainment System. I had never seen an Atari, any other sort of uh, electronic gaming system before, and so this was completely revolutionary, blew my socks off. Uh, getting blisters and having Nintendo thumb was a true medical condition. And uh, so, yeah, this was just a game to be sure, was not, you know, work software or something else, but to simply call it a new game didn't do it justice. It was qualitatively different from anything that had come before it. It was nothing like Monopoly or Sorry or any other kind of game. Or to use another example, can you adults and young adults uh, remember back to when you took a vehicle out for the first time, whether that was when you got your permit or maybe had a family member who let you drive on a, a quieter back road. Riding a bike was nice enough. Driving grandpa's riding lawnmower was fun. Maybe you had a friend who had a go-kart. That was cool, sure. But there was something entirely different about moving yourself through space in that way. Those were all modes of uh, transportation, but there was so much more new power at your fingertips and your foot. Yes, Ethan, even your dad's Prius, more power. <laughs> but they just weren't compare worth comparing to the bike or the riding lawnmower. This was new. This was just really in a different category in class. So for several months, we've been preaching our way through the, the book of Hebrews. And again, this is a book, we say this just about every week, that is all about the supremacy, the superiority of Jesus and all that he has inaugurated. Last week, we looked at how he was uh, a better high priest. He's the final high priest that all prior priests uh, were pointing toward and falling short of. And today, we'll touch on that a little bit uh, again but our focus is going to be primarily on the new and better covenant that our high priest has secured for us through his blood. But the newness of that covenant isn't like getting a new version of the same kind of thing you already have. It's not like getting a new t-shirt to replace the other one that had worn out, got holes, or tennis shoes, maybe in the same category there. Not even like a new job. Today we're going to look at the new covenant that God initiated for us in Christ and see how he has been faithful to provide just a qualitatively better covenant in at least three key ways. And those ways that he has provided a better covenant are as uh, with a, a higher priest, a fuller propitiation, and I'll define that later on, and a greater power. So a higher priest, a fuller propitiation, and a greater power. I know Derek just prayed, but I, I've got to pray for myself. Uh, so would you join me in praying before we open God's word? Father, just quickly and simply want to acknowledge, uh, yeah, my need, my finitude, my earthenness uh, to rightly handle your word of truth. I want to do that this morning, um, so I pray that you would give me the grace to do that, and for all of us, God, we are going to, again, look through and into your law of liberty, and we do not want to be those that James writes of, who, who look and see who we actually are and who you are, and then walk away and forget. So please give us grace to also hear 
and obey and apply and enjoy uh, what we look into this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, if you would turn with me to Hebrews 8. We're going to read the whole uh, chunk. It's 13 verses. It's the whole chapter, uh, and then we'll dive into it some more. Hebrews 8, 1 through 13. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of his majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for the priests also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. That's referring to Jesus. They, those priests, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other one, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's word. Since we are talking about covenants today, I don't want to assume that everyone knows what that word means. We do use that word on occasion, just not every day. Uh, but we talk about marriage covenants, or if you've moved into a condo or a homeowner's association, you've heard of CCNRs, maybe the conditions, covenants, and responsibilities uh, that come with that. But again, not a, a word we use uh, every day. In plain terms, it's uh, a formal agreement between two or more parties. Biblically speaking, though, the covenants that God makes are so much more than that. In verse 6 and following, when we see the author speak of covenants, he doesn't use what would have been the common Greek word for covenant in that time, which is santheko, and it just refers to, as I said, a mutual agreement between two parties where they're both coming on pretty equal footing uh, and coming to those agreements together. Instead of using that more common term for that day, he uses a different word in a very uncommon fashion. He uses the word diatheke, which refers to a person's last will and testament. That doesn't really square with the definition that I shared a moment ago of two people kind of coming on equal footing. In most cases, when you create a will and you don't call your kids together and say, all right, here's the assets. What do you guys think? How are we going to divide this up? No, you're the one with the, the wealth, the resource. 
you look at uh, what you have and you make those decisions about where those things are going to go. And then, sure, hopefully, you let your uh, heirs, your loved ones, your kids, nonprofits that are in there, maybe you let them know how you've chosen to divide it. But it's not uh, an equal footing sort of situation. You as the one with the resources, you make the decisions. Your heirs are simply the recipients. And that's exactly the point of the covenants that God makes with us. As we read in chapter uh, 7 last week, verse 7, that that verse says, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And we see that bearing out here as well in the Greek word chosen for covenant. We don't bring a wad of cash or any real estate portfolio to uh, our relationship with God. In fact, all we do have are holes in our pockets in the sin uh, that we bring to um, that relationship. John Piper puts it this way, so referring to covenants. So there is mutual obligation, uh, but not mutual determination of what those obligations are. God comes to the covenant knowing what is best for us, and we come trusting and obeying, or we don't come at all. In a covenant between God and man, God sets the obligations, not man. So that is how a covenant with God works. And there's even more that we could say out of Genesis 15 about that, about how God even calls down a curse upon himself for even our failure to fulfill that covenant. But the question remains, so why was a new covenant needed? What was wrong with the Mosaic covenant? And the answer is because it was broken and faulty and obsolete we see that in verses 7 and 8 and 13 today. Now, I don't know about you in your home, but in our house, when something is broken, the natural question is, well, how does this get broken? And then, of course, who broke this thing? And so that's what we ask ourselves here. Whose fault is, is this? It didn't just break itself. About 18 months or so ago, uh, I came home, and the screen on our laptop uh, was no longer a screen. It was a kind of psychedelic work of art uh, because there was one point, and then there's a bunch of lines kind of going away from it, creating this rainbow effect on uh, this black canvas. And had Carly not been there to explain the events leading up to our new work of art, uh, I would have naturally gone around to the four boys and said, "Uh, boys, can you help me understand how this happened? Who broke this? What happened here? Uh, Incidentally, laptop screens are relatively easy to replace, and so if you have a budding artist in your home, I can uh, give you some tips about how to rectify that. So the question remains, how did the covenant get broken such that it needed replacing with a new covenant? And there's two ways to actually answer that question, which sometimes happens in our homes, I suppose. Sometimes there's two people involved. The first and obvious answer is that the Israelites broke it. Leading into the lengthy quote we have uh, in our text today from Jeremiah 31, the author says in verse 8, for God finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. It was through their continual, habitual, perpetual disobedience and rebellion 
against the holy and gracious God that they broke the covenant that God instituted with his people through Moses. Even this Jeremiah 31 passage speaks to their fault when God says he's going to make a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That used to be one house, but it was through their rebellion at the, the death of Solomon that the kingdom divided into two, no longer one. So we even see in that text there that there is a, a pointing to their fault, their sin in not keeping the covenant. So there's no real surprise here. If you have any familiarity with Israel's history, it is one big story of big promises, but little follow through. Big promises, but little follow through. And if we're honest with ourselves and if we're humble, we can look a lot of times like Israel ourselves. Big promises, little follow through. The book of Joshua is just one place where we find dozens of passages that illustrate this reality of Israel's pride and inclination to sin and break that covenant. One that really jumps out to me is uh, found in Joshua 24, 16 through 20. Joshua has reached the end of his life and his ministry, and he is giving his farewell address to Israel. This is the passage where we find that well-known phrase, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, choose this day. So it's in that, the same speech that we um, find ourselves in, in Joshua 24, 16 uh, through 20. A few verses after Joshua has exhorted and admonished them to walk in faithfulness to God as he leaves the scene, the people reply by saying, with all, I guess, pride, sincerity, um, strength, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us up and our fathers up from the land of Egypt. Skipping to verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord, for he is holy, a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. What stands out for me in this passage in verse 19 is when Joshua doesn't say, you won't serve the Lord, like let's be honest, which would have been a, a fine and fair statement of him kind of predicting based on their uh, prior journey through the wilderness and such, how they would perform in the future. But he doesn't say you won't. He says you're not able. You, you can't. It's an impossibility. You and all humankind are born in sin. He is holy. You are totally depraved. You cannot do this on your own. And so that leads us to the second answer of the question of who or what broke this old covenant. The covenant was broken to begin with, so to speak. If you look again at, at verse 7, we read there that for th if the first covenant had been faultless, if it had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second covenant. And verse 12 says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Verse 12 is God's promise under the new covenant. He is describing a new feature of this new covenant, which implies that under the old covenant, there did remain a memory of Israel's sins. The sacrificial system of the old covenant did not fully remove the guilt of sin. Sacrifices had to continually be offered. 
not just because Israel continued to sin, which was a reality, but because those sacrifices themselves could never fully wash away their guilt and satisfy the wrath, the just wrath of God. Yes, he was merciful to them, but the guilt of their sin and rebellion against God couldn't be fully absorbed by that old covenant. Adding more to the faultiness of the old covenant, if we look back to uh, our text last week, 7, 18 through 19, we read, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. The author of Hebrews is not pulling any punches here. He calls the old covenant weak, useless, obsolete. But why the strong language? Well, verse 19 we just read there provides the answer. The old covenant was impotent to cause lasting change and sanctify God's people. The law made nothing perfect. That is a huge goal of our creator and redeemer, not just that we would be forgiven, but that we would become and be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect himself. That he'd be glorified as we look more and more like him and less like our broken and rebellious selves. Now, if you're a newer Christian or maybe not a Christian at all, you might be saying to yourself, wow, God really missed the target the first time around. He's, I guess, sort of like the Wright brothers or like Steve Jobs and just kind of had to make a plan, test it out, then had to discover and work out the bugs after the the first number of, of failures and attempts. Given what we've just talked about, though, that would be a logical way of thinking but you would be mistaken in thinking that God is just some brilliant inventor who gets it right by iterating. The new covenant established through Christ's blood was not God's plan B. And if you're, you've walked with Christ, you know that, but it's good to, be, to remember that. It's not his plan B after he went back to the drawing board. We know this from several passages in Scripture. For example, Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost to the Jews, In Acts chapter 2, 23 and 24, he says this, preaching to the crowd, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So the new covenant in Christ's blood was always his original intent. But then that raises yet another question. What was the purpose of a faulty, weak covenant that was intended and designed to wear out and fade away? Like, who of us make things knowing, yeah, they're going to fall away. They're going to crumble. They're not going to really work out. When I do stuff at my house and repair things, I kind of like it to last as long as possible to save that effort and energy. I'm sure you're the same way. So again, what is the point of a, a covenant created that was meant to wear out and fade away? That's a good question. Do any of you this morning here own any electronics? Perhaps there are a few iPhone owners in here. A headline uh, just from the beginning of January, just a month ago, caught my attention about a $2 billion, that's with a B, uh, dollar class action lawsuit that is working its way through the courts in England. Uh, The article, uh, just quoting from that article, says this, First filed in 2022, Justin Gutman's iPhone battery lawsuit claims that the hardware used by Apple in seven iPhone models were unable to cope with the demands of these devices, processor, 
and operating system. And on top of that, continuing the quote, it further alleges that the iOS updates, so the software, that were pushed automatically by I Apple and onto iPhone users included a power management tool that showed that slowed their performance. The natural result of that, of course, especially if you're an iPhone owner, you might have felt this, experienced this, was that the phones got more and more sluggish and faulty and obsolete. And so users were highly motivated uh, to go out and get the newer, better, more powerful model. Because of what was faulty and becoming obsolete, customers were wanting the new, the better, and went out and made their purchases. Well, Paul puts it, uh, in this way, in Galatians 3, 21 through 26. Kind of speaking to that same idea. Galatians 3, 21 through 26. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So the old covenant wasn't a dud. It wasn't a failed project. God isn't Thomas Edison or Elon Musk who eventually created great inventions only after dozens of failed attempts. No, the covenant God established with and through Moses accomplished exactly what God designed it to, which was to help fallen humanity feel the captivity of our sin feel the futility of our own efforts for salvation and feel our desperate need for a better and newer and more powerful covenant. The new covenant in Christ's blood is qualitatively new in numerous ways, but I'm going to focus just on three uh, ways that we see here in Hebrews 8. And again, those are that it's marked by a higher priest and a fuller propitiation and a greater power. Again, back in uh, verse 1 of our text today, Hebrews 8, 1, the, we read the point, and what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. I think it is important to point out here that the author of Hebrews is writing sometime just before AD 70, which is when the temple uh, was destroyed. He's writing to challenge and encourage the disciples of Jesus to remain faithful to him in the face of just great persecution and opposition. Some have already fallen away from the faith and greater persecutions are coming that will greatly test their faith. Many of these newer believers are likely converts from Judaism. So as these newer converts face overwhelming hardship from both Rome and from Jews, the author wants them to know the greater reality that they are a part of. The temple and the whole sacrificial system that they're familiar with isn't the real deal. It's merely a shadow. It's a, a Polaroid photo of the greater reality in the heavenly places. 
Even when the Jewish temple gets destroyed in a few short years, it doesn't matter because in the true Holy of Holies, there is, it stands firmly fixed in the heavens. And better than that, the true high priest is seated on the throne. And he's seated because there aren't any other sacrifices that need to be made. He's seated because of the reconciling of humanity to God is finished. Our efforts to rebuild human temples and offer our own sacrifices and atone for our own sin has been done away with. As we're just one month into the new year here and some of those resolutions are likely a little bit shaky, we very much need to remember the truth that our great high priest is seated in the heavenly places next to the throne of majesty. As your thoughts of where you're currently falling short or failing, as those condemn you, we need to remember that it's not our efforts that justify or purify us before God. It was his effort of justifying and purifying us that was finished 2,000 years ago. So Christ took a seat. Besides that, this new covenant offers us a fuller propitiation. The Son is seated because the Father has been satisfied. His just and righteous wrath for our sin has been fully and finally absorbed. He has been propitiated. Now, if covenant isn't a super familiar word, propitiation is probably even less so. Uh, on the one hand, it very much speaks of the wrath of God, the just wrath of God absorbed and placated, if you will. But that is not all. To be propitiated means to be favorably inclined toward, to be delighted with, to want to do good for the other. If you are propitious towards someone, it means that you're not just not opposed to them, but you're actually inclined toward them and you want the best for them. Chapter 10.4 that we'll get to in the 10 verse 4 that we'll get to in a couple more weeks says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And we see that in our text today. God said of this new covenant in verse 12 that I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. The implication being, as I mentioned earlier, that under that prior covenant, God did maintain a memory of Israel's sins and iniquities. He overlooked them. He passed over them for a time being, but he was by no means going to forget them. Just as the temple uh, here on earth was a mere shadow of a greater reality in the heavenly places, so the animal, animal sacrifices God offered on the altar were a foreshadowing, a looking forward to the perfect spotless Lamb of God and his perfectly lived life and his sacrificial death in our place, that they have fully absorbed the Father's wrath toward us, so that if we are in Christ, he is nothing but propitious and kind and favorable toward us, nothing but positively inclined toward us. Verse 12 says that under this new covenant and initiated through Christ's blood, that he'll be merciful, not wrathful toward our iniquities. So again, as we're still very much at the front end of a new year, you and I need to stop striving in our own efforts to justify ourselves before God. And at the same time, don't do nothing. Don't let a false sense of his disapproval keep you from trying to serve and please him from your heart. You and I don't have to worry about provoking 
his wrath, his displeasure. He's not like a lot of us parents, I'll speak for myself, who sinfully get exasperated and frustrated and annoyed or even angry occasionally with our kids. Again, applying the glorious reality of God being propitious toward us, that doesn't mean that we just chill or coast. Just the opposite. We try more and harder knowing that it is his heart for us aiming at progress, not perfection. If you don't, didn't plan your day out well and you only have five minutes left to pray or read his word, great, then do that with that little sliver that's left. If you weren't intentional with your finances and you don't have that full offering that you feel called to give, that's okay. Still give what you do have. If you've been putting off for weeks or months reaching out to that person that God has put on your heart to, to reconnect with or maybe even reconcile with, don't wait for things to be perfect. Just go ahead and walk in obedience, the obedience he's calling you to. It won't be perfect. It doesn't have to be. Let his justification of you give you this and your soul the rest it needs from the frenetic self-justifying efforts that we typically make. But then also let his crazy delight in you and joy through Christ's work impel you toward taking that action, however imperfect it is. The Father rejoices over you, so just try, just do. That brings us to the third of three main ways that the new covenant is incredibly better. We, all of humanity, needed a new covenant with a higher priest and a better propitiation, and lastly, a greater power. As you take your imperfect steps of trying to walk in greater obedience, don't do it merely in your own strength. This is one of the best realities, I think, of the new covenant. The former covenant failed, and Israel failed, because they lacked the power to do so. All they had to work with was their flesh. But the new covenant is centered on the transformation and the mind and the heart of all those made alive in Christ. The old covenant grew old in a sense because it was lifeless. This new covenant never wears out. We are 2,000 plus years into it, and it is still as fresh and new and vital as ever. We don't need a new religion or a new philosophy or a new worldview. It's, in fact, quite interesting to see or hear. I don't know what news sources or podcasts you listen to, but there is quite a lot being said lately about the surprising rebirth of belief in God. I know there's a sense that the, hell, the world's going to hell in a handbasket in many ways, but on the other hand, there are a number of intellectuals or different leaders who are realizing the vacuousness, the emptiness of atheism, other worldviews, and are seeing the compelling, robust, life-giving nature of what Christ and Christianity offer. So it's really quite something to see how uh, what is old is, is new again in some ways, in some circles. There is that cliche bumper sticker out there that we've probably all seen or at least heard referenced, which is that Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. And there is some truth to that. But it is such a big underselling of the new covenant, of the gospel, the good news. We don't just need 
forgiveness. And God doesn't just provide forgiveness for our sin. We need to stop falling into sin and into those same sinful patterns in the first place. We need to enjoy and experience a newness of life. And thankfully, God always provides what he commands. His new covenant promise in verse 10 that we read today is such amazingly good news. He said in verse 10 there, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. At first reading, I think it'd be easy to say, well, I mean, what's the big deal? Laws or laws? Whether they're written on stone tablets, written on parchment paper, written on human heart, what's the big deal? They're still laws. So why is this better? What does it mean to have God's laws written on our hearts and on our minds? Turn, if you would, with me to 2 Corinthians 3 for uh, an answer to that question and uh, an insight that Paul shares about why that is so much better. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 3, and then we'll skip down to 17. Paul writes this, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Skipping down to 17. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, were being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The good news of the new covenant that God made with sinful humanity isn't just that we have a great high priest whose self-sacrifice has removed God's wrath and made him favorable toward us, but it's also that his Holy Spirit takes up residence in us and makes us his temple not with a glory that fades or is susceptible to being destroyed, but with a glory which increases from one degree to an even greater degree. And this is all by the power of his Holy Spirit. To many of us, too many of us, myself included, often only think of salvation in terms of forgiveness, of looking back on our faults and asking God to, to cover those and, and be merciful toward those. But we also need to look forward and say, God, I, I want to grow. I want to change. I want to be different. I want to look more like my Redeemer. Change me by your indwelling spirit. Help me to work out my salvation, but with fear and trembling, knowing that it's you actually doing the work in me. Church, his power is real, lasting. Change is possible Growth is possible. Behaving in a new way from a cleansed and an empowered heart is possible. I've seen that in my own life, overcoming an addiction to pornography. But much more recently in the last few years, I have seen the Spirit's power at work in the life of a friend who came to Christ, um, again, just a few years ago, a few years ago as an adult. He is roughly my age. He was an Army veteran, served in Afghanistan and Iraq, and that had a very negative impact on him. The things that he was commanded to do, the trauma he witnessed, and even after uh, being out of active duty, 
the friends he lost to suicide who couldn't um, handle what they experienced. All of those things came together and scarred him and changed him greatly and caused him to withdraw from life. He was extremely just distant from family, friends, interactions with him were just strained and awkward. He was, I would say, a shell of a man. He miraculously and came to Christ and truly was a visibly new creation. But where I saw that most vividly uh, was that his previous ways of being and acting in his family um, caused an environment that led his wife to make her own choices that further damaged their relationship and were grounds for him to actually seek divorce from her. But as I walked with him in his new faith and would have conversations with him, the number of times that I had to pick my jaw up off of the floor to hear how he was pursuing his wife, seeking reconciliation, wanting to own every bit of, despite the PTSD and all of that, wanting to own his part in the failure of the relationship, to forgive her sin, pretty big sin against him, the number of times I had to pick my jaw up and just be amazed and, and just be humbled at what he was teaching me about faithfully walking with Christ. It was just astounding to witness firsthand. I was so blown away as I, I saw a man who just months before with the same set of circumstances would have been gone, but instead, with God's laws now written on his mind and heart, he was relentlessly pursuing reconciliation with her. One of the photos on my screensaver at work, in fact, was of this friend getting baptized, which besides being a great conversation starter for, co for coworkers walking by my desk, was just a, a wonderful, powerful reminder that I wanted every day of God's power through the new covenant to change lives, um, yeah, through the new life he gives. God's power of change and growth is real. Press into him to be changed, regardless of your age or how many years you've been walking with Christ. Don't let apathy and indifference to growth remain. Holy Spirit-empowered change is the normal pursuit, not the extra-spiritual pursuit of a healthy, mature disciple of Christ. And that growth happens best and most thoroughly in community with gospel-rooted brothers and sisters. So good job being here this morning. You could be somewhere else, uh, but you're not. You're here. But don't let this be your only point of connection and fellowship. Be active in a small group, in women's and men's studies. Have people over to your place for lunch or dinner. Just gather together to grow together and remind each other of this new covenant that we're not just forgiven, but we are spirit-indwelt and empowered for growth and change as well. Before we start to close, just one final thought on pursuing growth in God's power. I, I feel like there's, you know, maybe some cynicism I hear or I can anticipate. I know our flesh, I know the enemy are all too quick to scoff at the idea of our growing and maturing at all. One antidote to this, to be sure, is to take time and to create space to recognize and give God praise for the areas that he has already been growing you. 2 Corinthians 3 that we read earlier says that the Spirit changes us from one degree of glory to another. 
But what it doesn't specify is the measuring device for calculating and, and assessing that growth. What is a degree? Doesn't say. So maybe in your hunger to see kilograms of change, don't overlook the milligrams of change. If in your hunger for being miles down the road from where you have been, don't miss the meters that he has brought you. Look at those. Remember those. Give God praise for those. Don't dismiss those. But honor God and the growth that he has already accomplished and let that be fuel and fire for moving further forward. Compared with a year ago, do you bark at your kids a little less even though you still do too much? Do you have more self-control with not getting consumed endlessly and mindlessly into social media even though, yeah, there's a little too much Nintendo thumb there still in your hand. Have you asked for forgiveness a little more often, a little more quickly, even though your relationship with your friend or loved one still isn't in that perfect, perfect, solid space of wholeness? Teens, have you decreased the number of disrespectful eye rolls that you give your parents? Are you a little more generous with gifts of time and money? We're not talking about gigantic victories here but any growth is a gift from God, so be sure to thank him for producing that growth in you. We have an amazing covenant keeping, creating and keeping God. So marvel at his patience with his people through the centuries. Be amazed that through, that though he has the power, all of the power, all of the wealth to set the terms and we could be shafted that he doesn't do that. The covenant he's made for us is outrageously generous. Praise him that we live now this side of the cross under this new covenant through which we can rest in Christ's finished work and yet also work hard from the knowledge that our Father remembers our sins no more and work from the empowerment his spirit supplies. Let's celebrate and remember his new covenant So as we um, prepare to respond to him, let's sing our praises back to him, knowing that the son is seated because the father is satisfied and in response, his spirit has been sent. Let's pray.